to Ask Me Anything for today, Friday the 13th of November, 2020. This is Raf. Got a bunch of questions today, so let's get stuck into it. Karen says, Hi Raf, can you please let me know if it's possible to be registered for health insurance rebates for clients? I'm in Australia. I've had a couple ask if they claim can claim their class pass. I'm not sure if it's possible and what I would need to do to qualify for them to be able to do this warmly. Karen. Uh, well, Karen, the sad answer to that question is no, it's not possible. Uh, up until the 1st of April 2019, uh, some private health funds offered rebates for Pilates on some of their uh packages. Uh, but on the 1st of April 2019, the Australian government uh, brought in a law that basically made it illegal to um, claim or, or give private health rebates for uh, Pilates amongst other things. So basically complementary therapies. Uh, so even if you're a physio, uh, an exercise physiologist, an osteopath uh, teaching Pilates, um, your clients cannot claim for Pilates. Um, if you're a physio, you, your clients can claim for a physio session if it's a physio session, not a Pilates session. So I know the APA, the Australian Physiotherapy Association, um, <clears throat> have cracked down you know, fairly hard on physios who are uh, were um, giving uh, Pilates sessions and then kind of classifying them or billing them as physio sessions. Um, and same with ESSA, the Exercise and Sports Science Australia, the Exercise Physiology uh, body. Um, basically, uh, you can't claim private health for Pilates. So that's the long and the short answer. Um, there may be uh, a very, very slight uh, loophole to that, um, Karen, actually, which is that uh, on some uh, private health funds, you may be able to claim uh, Pilates as just basically exercise under, you know, some of them have something called a, quote, healthy lifestyle uh, sort of package. So if you do a gym membership or personal training or something, um, it's usually a pretty small annual limit um, up to like, you know, a couple of hundred bucks a year sort of thing. Um, and you would have to check with your particular health fund, but it would, that would be like a, just a generic thing like if you did a first aid course or a quit smoking course or whatever, that would also come under that um, same category. So I'm not sure if that applies. It may or may not. Um, but if it does, it's the only way. Um, yeah. Thanks, Karen. And now Carly says, hi again, Raf. I just have another question since I don't know where to find the answers that are trustworthy on Google, how to sort through the good ones. The course I'm doing for mat work keeps that's Pilates, uh, keeps going on about no pain, uh, tailoring to clients with contraindications and not giving clients with a herniated disc, disc bulge or sciatica positions with neural tension, e.g. hundreds with toes to ceiling, twisting, etc. Is there good reason for this? Will it exacerbate it and damage it further? <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry if you've answered this previously. I tried to look through the previous AMA to check if you've answered this. So if you have, can you just refer me to the specific one? Actually, this course goes on about being, quote, safe all the time, not to further increase pain for clients with problems. Refer to allied health professional is repeated. Refer to the Nocebo podcast. Laughing emoji. Um, all right, so uh, great question, Carly. So basically, um, uh, 
the, the concept of neural tension is uh, that basically your the your spinal cord is a continuation of your brain. So basically, the the nerve cell bodies or the neurons are in your brain, and each neuron has uh, what's called an axon, which is essentially just a tail. So like a very very long tail, um, and the tail is your spinal cord. So the tails of uh, many of the uh, neurons in your brain, the axons, those tails go down through your vertebral canal um, and form your spinal cord. And then they synapse, or in other words, you know, link up with um, neuronal cell bodies um, just outside the spinal canal. So they kind of poke out a tiny bit out of your um, neural foramen and um, link up or synapse is the proper term with uh, peripheral nerves. Um, so basically there's a new cell body just outside your uh, neural foramen and that is called the nerve root. And then the tails or the axons of those peripheral nerves go down to your liver or your big toe or your biceps muscle or whatever. Um, and so the essentially you for you know if you wanted to uh, you know contract a muscle in your ankle, say, um, or in your in your lower limb, um, you would, uh, you know, fire neurons in your brain in order to do that, and they would send a message down their own tails, down the axons that are that form your spinal cord, and that message would be transferred or synapsed um, to the the cell bodies, the neurons of those peripheral nerves that live just outside the spinal cord and are connected to those spinal nerves, and then that would send, uh, they would continue that uh, nerve impulse down those axons of those peripheral nerves, those long tails of those peripheral nerves, all the way down to your, you know, whichever muscle it was in your lower leg that you wanted to contract. And so essentially there is a continuous kind of, you know, line of nerve um, fiber or nerve tract um, that goes from your brain to your foot. Um, and it goes down the back of your body, you know, through the through your spinal canal and then down the back of your leg. So when you bend forwards, you know, when you flex your hip and extend your knee and flex your spine, in other words, when you kind of touch your toes, um, everything on the back of your body, including your nerve tract, is stretched, you know, tensioned. Tent to tension, something just means to pull on each end, to pull it apart. So, uh, so. Positions that involve neural tension are just basically forward bends. Uh, so, um, and the idea is, uh, I think that Carly's uh, trying to get at here is that uh, for people with disc bulge, sometimes uh, the a bulging disc can impinge or press on a nerve root. One, you know, where those uh, spinal nerves synapse with the peripheral nerves just outside the neural foramen in the lower spinal cord, lower vertebral bodies. Um, and so if if that uh, disc bulge presses on or impinges a nerve root, it can um, reduce the amount of, uh, the, it can prevent that nerve root from kind of sliding smoothly in and out of the neural foramen. Um, which, you know, when you bend forward means that if it can't kind of slide through there, it can't, uh, you know, it will get kind of stuck and will cause you all kinds of pain possibly down your leg. So that's the basic uh, 
concept, I believe. Um, and so, is and the question is really, is there is there anything in that? Well, uh, I would say uh, in a small number of cases, uh, possibly uh, yes, but those cases will be pretty obvious to you. So, uh, the first first thing, just in terms of disc bulge and pain, is that they're they are very poorly correlated together. So uh, a lot of people have disc bulges and a lot of people have pain and a lot of people have disc bulges with pain and a lot of people have disc bulges without pain and a lot of people have pain without disc bulges. So there's just not a great correlation between disc bulge and pain, although there is some correlation. So there's not no correlation, but there's just not a very good correlation between disc bulge and pain. So uh, depending on age, you know, if, you, if you're 40 years old and have never had a history of back pain, you've probably got like a 40% chance of having disc bulges. So, you know, 40% of pain-free 40-year-olds have a disc bulge. Um, so, you know, they're, they're very common in pain-free people. So just because someone has a disc bulge and has pain doesn't mean that the disc bulge is the cause of the pain. So there are many people with that exact same size and shape of disc bulge who have no pain. So it's not a given that a disc bulge is the cause of back pain. Uh, uh, secondly, um, if you have nerve impingement, you know, if you are pressing on a nerve root, um, if the disc bulge is pressing on a nerve root in your low back, the symptom of that will not be back pain. The symptom of that will be leg pain. Um, when you get uh, nerve root compression, um, basically the nerve can fire off spurious signals, you know, like false nerve signals, as it were, um, that tell you that there's, you know, someone's pressing a white hot poker into the back of your leg um, when actually that's not the case, but you have the sensation that that is the case. So uh, now if somebody has, and the pain is often referred to as sciatica because the nerve that goes down, the nerve tract that goes down the back of your leg is the sciatic nerve tract. And so uh, when you get pain down the back of your leg, um, that is commonly called sciatica. So if someone has sciatica due to a disc bulge pressing on a nerve root in their low back and if that sciatica is made worse by doing a forward bend like for instance 100 with legs pointing at the ceiling or spine stretch or the end position of roll up or any one of a dozen other positions that are pretty similar roll over etc um, so if they have pain in their leg and if that pain in their leg is significantly worse when they do those positions, well, probably just, you know, back off those positions uh, and just do a less extreme version or just, you know, avoid them whilst they aggravate that pain. So I would expect, I would expect that uh, to be a temporary situation, you know, whilst the disc heals and the inflammation settles. Um, but if someone doesn't have sciatica, uh they're very unlikely to have any kind of nerve uh, issue. And if they don't get any symptom with forward bending um, or you know, tensioning that nerve, well, there's no reason whatsoever to avoid those positions. Uh, you know, if you told everyone with a disc bulge to avoid forward bending, you'd have to tell roughly, you know, 50% of the pain-free population to never bend forwards. And that's just ridiculous. So, um, my, uh, I guess my, my 
take on it is uh, that uh, you know it's it's almost to me in my mind it's almost irrelevant whether someone has a disc bulge or not. Um, I don't consider that to be a very useful piece of information in terms of giving exercise to people. Um, if someone has back pain, um, that's an interesting and useful piece of information. Uh, and the only time that would influence my, you know, the programming that I would give somebody would be if there were positions that they were particularly fearful of or positions that that especially aggravated their pain to an intolerable level. I would probably initially avoid those positions and gradually work them towards, uh, you know, moving into those positions. Uh, and if someone had sciatica, you know, with or without a disc bulge, with or without a diagnosis, you know, if they basically have leg pain, um, and if that leg pain was significantly exacerbated by particular positions, um, I would initially um, go easy on those positions, not necessarily avoid them completely, but just reduce the range of motion to a point where it's tolerable uh, and, you know, carry on. Um, keep calm and carry on. Uh, the the natural history of sciatica and disc bulge is extremely be, uh, ex, extremely uh, good. Um, there's a very good prognosis. Um, the vast majority of people get better within a year, just through natural history. So just through the natural healing process and your body's, you know clever um, mechanisms. It's just going to solve that problem for you. There's really nothing much you need to do apart from not not excessively aggravate it. Um, and just a little bit of pain or discomfort or, you know, a bit of a flare up is not, is not a problem uh, in terms of, you know, long-term uh, outcomes. It's just kind of an annoying, you know, painful episode, but it's not going to cause any major problems. So basically, short version, uh, if someone just has a disc bulge with or without leg pain, um, I don't consider that very relevant. That's something I would just file under the don't really care about it uh, category. Um, if someone has back pain, um, I would reassure them and encourage them to keep moving. If there are particular positions that they find intolerable or that they're very fearful of, I would, uh, you know, work them gradually towards doing those positions, trying to do it in a non-threatening uh, context. So if they don't like doing a, uh, you know, rollover, maybe a seated forward bend might be an easier, less threatening place for them to do that exact same position. Uh, and finally, if somebody has sciatica or AKA leg pain, um, I would be very hopeful and optimistic because there's an extremely good prognosis. In fact, the worse the leg pain, the better the prognosis. Most people, the vast majority, are better through through natural history, just by the natural uh, healing process within a year. And all your job is to do, as Voltaire said, is amuse the patient while nature cures the disease. And so all you need to do is basically avoid really aggravating it. And I don't mean just like causing a bit of a flare up or a bit of a, you know, twinge or whatever. I mean, like, you know, if, if, if you flared it up so badly that they, you know, it was still flared up five days later, um, you know, that's probably a good sign that you did, you know, too much. Um, but if it gets, it's a bit painful during exercise, but settles within, you know, a few hours afterwards, that's totally fine. I wouldn't worry about it. So I hope that helps Carly. Um, now there is a second part to your question which says also, for further questions, where and how do I find solid research results so I don't keep emailing with questions? Uh, what a great question. That is the question of all questions, Carly, because once you can answer that question, 
you can answer every question. So all you do is you go to Google Scholar and Google Scholar is a just like Google, it's part of Google, and it's scholar.google.com. So S-C-H-O-L-A-R.google.com. And that is the Google search engine for academic research. So you won't get uh, cat photos or anything like that. You will only get, um, by and large, um, peer-reviewed scientific research. And then you just type in a few keywords. So in this case... uh, You might type in, if you're interested in disc bulge, sciatica, and neural tension, you might type in disc bulge, comma, sciatica, comma, uh, exercise, comma, and then the magic word, systematic review, or two words, systematic review. Systematic review means it's a study of studies. So that's not just one study, it's reviewing basically all the literature on a topic in a, you know, that's, that's, you know, that has been done. Um, at the point, at the time when the systematic review is done. So uh, then you just hit enter and see what comes up. And um, there are a few options there that you can search by, you know, you can filter by more recent studies and things like that. Um, and I I think I've got a video on that. And if I do, I will uh, link to it in the show notes. But if not, just go to Google Scholar, which is scholar.google.com. Type in some keywords uh, and I... I recommend that you use the the keywords systematic review um, uh, and because when wherever there are systematic reviews available that's definitely your best source of information because they're way less biased than a single study so um, sometimes there aren't systematic reviews but for something like low back pain or sciatica there are oodles of them so um, that's what I recommend the other thing is um, you can buy yourself a book called uh, the American College of Sports Medicine's Guidelines for Exercise Testing and Prescription. And the current edition is the 10th edition, 2018. And uh, that is a fantastic resource um, for all things exercise prescription. Um, it was the textbook in my master's degree in clinical exercise physiology. And they've done a lot of the heavy lifting for you um, in terms of uh, figuring out what the best exercise is for someone with Parkinson's or diabetes or heart failure or low back pain or sciatica or multiple sclerosis or whatever it might be, um, 101 different conditions. Uh, and it is uh, really considered the, the gold standard of exercise prescription for special populations uh, around the world. Um, it's, it's a pretty standard textbook in most um, – you know, bachelor or master level exercise courses. Uh, and I will link to that in the show notes. It's about 45 bucks on Amazon. All right. Thanks, Carly. Now, Sarah says, Hi, Raf. Thanks so much for continuing to do the AMA sessions. I'm finding them so interesting and helpful and still loving the anatomy lectures. They're the bomb. Well, thanks, Sarah. Love that you're putting out all this juicy stuff for us all. Such a huge commitment and dedication on your part. Thank you again. Well, actually, Sarah, uh, thank you. And that is why I've moved to this audio-only format. Well, it's one of the reasons. Um, uh, First reason I've moved to audio-only is because uh, a lot of people tell me they listen to the video. (laughs) So I'm thinking, all right, well, why am I making a video for people to listen to? And the second reason is it's actually a lot less effort to make an audio um, than it is to make a video. There's less than half of the technology involved and I don't have to shave and, uh, 
you know, or even put on a shirt. So uh, anyway, here we are on audio only. And uh, Sarah says, I've a couple of questions, please. One, one of my clients has been told by a physio that she has loose ligaments and tight muscles. Is this even a thing? Especially with regard to the ligaments. Hmm. Well, um, I think, I guess my answer is uh, a qualified perhaps. Um, so is it possible to have loose ligaments? Yes. Is it possible to have tight muscles? Yes. Is it possible to have both at the same time? Yes. Is that probably common? No. Is it probably a cause of her pain? No. Is it probably a cause of injury or any other kind of quote dysfunction end quote? No. Um, but all right, let's, let's have a little bit of a closer look. So loose ligaments, um, Ligaments are made of connective tissue, the same as your tendons, same as, um, you know, can, like fascia around your body. Um, uh, incidentally, the same as your bones, basically, um, and cartilage. Uh, and basically, connective tissue is made of a protein or two proteins called collagen uh, and elastin. And um, collagen is a very thick, uh, straight uh, fairly rigid molecule, whereas elastin is a kind of thin, wavy, uh, much more flexible, stretchable molecule. Um, and uh, generally, ligaments have a very high proportion of collagen and a fairly low proportion of elastin. So they're pretty rigid, not very stretchable. Um, think of it like, you know, when you get a pair of uh, pair of cotton pants and they're 100% cotton, they're not stretchable. But if they've got 3% elastin in them, well, they're, you know, there's a noticeable stretchableness to them. And the more elastin is in those pants, the more stretchable they are. And of course, if they're 100% elastin, they'll be extremely stretchable, but they will sag and bag very quickly because there's no like kind of rigidity or structure to them. So what you want is that cotton for the the, the structural integrity and the, the strength and the shape, and then you know a certain small dash of elastin um, for you know flexibility. So and that's what we want in our ligaments too. So we have mostly collagen and a little bit of elastin um, in our ligaments. And uh, the exact percentage is variable between people. So, you know, some people have a little bit more collagen, a little bit less elastin, and their ligaments are relatively stiffer, less flexible. And they're the people who, you know, stretch for years and still can't touch their toes. And then other people have a slightly lower proportion of collagen and a slightly higher proportion of elastin. And they're the people who, you know, never stretch and can still, you know, Pump, punch out the splits at a party. Um, and so, you know, that's just a normal kind of spectrum of human variation, just like people of different heights and different hair colors and different skin tones. And, you know, then fingernails grow at different speeds. Like we just all have variation around, um, you know, some kind of uh, mean, around some kind of average um, for, you know, all of our traits. Uh, and ligament stiffness is one of them. So some people naturally do have stiffer ligaments and some people naturally have less stiff ligaments. Now, those the less stiff ligament folk, um, now it's a spectrum. So it's not like everybody has, quote, normal ligaments. And then there's a few, you know, weirdos who have, quote, uh, loose ligaments. 
we're just all on a spectrum, you know, and some of us, some of us are more towards the stiff end and some of us are more towards the loose end. And most of us are kind of clustered towards the middle. Um, and so there's no kind of specific demarcation point where we say, oh, you're loose or, oh, you're stiff. It's just like, you know, it's shades of gray. Um, but people who are right towards, uh, the loose end of the spectrum, um, they tend to, it tends to be a genetic scenario. Well, of course it's a genetic scenario because your proportion of collagen to elastin is hundred percent genetic. Um, uh, it t- tends to be a more systemic scenario because uh, all of their connective tissue tends to have a higher proportion of elastin in it uh, than the average bear. So uh, connective tissue throughout their body is more elastic than the average. So that means that the connective tissue surrounding their blood vessels, their digestive tract, their heart, their lungs, their you know their skin, everything is more elastic. So all of those things are less stiff. And actually, you don't want everything less stiff necessarily. Um, these people tend to suffer from uh, low blood pressure, from you know um, heart conditions, digestive conditions, etc., because of the lack of stiffness in those structures. Uh, and um, you know, beyond a certain point, um, that uh, you know. Uh, condition of uh, relatively loose connective tissue or relatively flexible connective tissue uh, is called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So it is possible to have loose ligaments um, and it's also possible to have tight ligaments, um, but we don't particularly have a name for that. I think we just call that people who don't like yoga. Uh, And loose ligaments is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, so there are plenty of people who've got loose ligaments who make their living by having loose ligaments. They're called ballet dancers, gymnasts, and circus acrobats. So if you did a survey of, you know, the top, you know, 10,000 gymnasts, circus acrobats, and dancers in the world, I think you would find that 10,000 of them, uh, or in other words, 100%, have uh, hypermobility. So that's a good thing if you're an acrobat, gymnast, or dancer. Um and uh, actually, gymnasts who are more mobile in their lumbar spines have fewer injuries. So, uh, you know, in some cases, it's protective. So that's, that can be a good thing. Um, whereas if you're a rugby union player, you probably would prefer to be on the stiffer side um, because rugby union players who are stiffer have fewer injuries. So it depends on, you know, what you do, whether it's, you know, a good or a bad thing. Uh and so, right, so it's possible to have loose ligaments. Is it possible to have tight muscles? Well, the answer to that is a qualified yes, but that's, you know, muscles are tight for two reasons. Muscles can be tight because they're full of connective tissue. And if you have tight connective tissue, you'll have tight muscles. Uh, so, but if you've got loose ligaments, that means all of your connective tissue is very likely loose. So your muscles are not going to be tight because of tight connective tissue because you don't have tight connective tissue. So the only other reason muscles get tight is when they contract. Muscles, when they contract, are tight. Uh, So if you're somebody who is on the hypermobile or slash more flexible connective tissue slash higher percentage of elastin compared to collagen, end of the spectrum, you know, you've got loose ligaments, uh, and you are contracting your muscles, well, then you could have tight muscles and loose ligaments. Now, why would you walk around contracting your muscles all the time? Well, I don't know, a few reasons, none of them terribly good. Um, You know, maybe you've been told and believed that you need to contract your core all the time in order to 
quote, stabilize. Uh, so you walk around, you know, with your tummy squeezed in all the time. Well, that wouldn't be fun. Uh, and then you would have tight muscles and loose ligaments. But you could easily fix that by just relaxing your muscles. Um, another time might be if you had protective guarding. You know, so if you had a sore back, for example, or a sore shoulder or whatever, uh, you know, it's well established in the literature that when you have pain to an in an area, um, you know, it's a normal response to guard that area by co-contracting all the muscles around that joint. You know, so you contract the flexors and the extensors together. You know, you co-contract, and that uh, you know stiffens the joint. And, you know, if you've got a sprained ankle or something, that's a good plan. You want to stiffen it because your ligament's been damaged when you sprained it. And so now your muscles are kind of you know, splinting it, essentially. Uh, so that's a natural response. It's a normal response. And if you've got pain, uh, it's well established that that is, in fact, what happens. So if someone's got pain uh, and happens to be hypermobile, well, yeah, they could have tight, mu tight muscles and loose ligaments. But the tightness is not an inherent property of the muscles. It's just like a result of the fact that they're contracting. So you could just, you know, stop contracting them. Uh, and if you've got an injury, that's very hard. Or if you've got pain in your back, it's very hard to stop contracting them. Uh, and doing things like um, diaphragmatic breathing and things like that might help. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, it's like, well, is it causing a problem? You know, it's like, you know, if, it, if it's not causing a problem, don't worry about it. Um, so is it a problem having loose ligaments? Well, if you're a rugby player, yeah, it's probably going to predispose you to, you know, more dislocations. Uh, if you're a ballet dancer or a gymnast, it's probably going to be awesome and protective and reduce the number of injuries that you have. So is that something you want to do something about? Not necessarily. Is it something you can do anything about? No. Um, it's just the only thing you could do if you have loose ligaments is probably make some wise decisions about whether to be a professional rugby player or a professional acrobat um, and probably head more down to the acrobat end of things. Um, yeah, so I hope that helps. <clears throat> okay, Sarah's got one more question. With regard to posture, is it true to say that we are no longer labelling posture types and performing posture analysis on new clients as a person's posture can change throughout the day depending on how they're feeling? Uh, the answer to that is, well, let's read the rest of the question. However, someone with an obvious kyphosis is not really going to move away from that posture. Also, I've always believed I have a sway back posture, butt out, anterior pelvic tilt, and lordosis of the lumbar spine, but I believe now this is not the case. Can you explain, please explain a little of that sway back posture? Um, all right. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, that is from Sarah. Apologies. Um, maybe that's from Andrea. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I think these, these last two questions are both from Andrea. Apologize, Andrea and Sarah. I uh, have a very uh, slapdash way of transcribing these questions from email and social media and Slack where I receive them, and uh, I've cut and pasted your names back to front, so apologies for that. All right, um, so Andrea, my apologies. All right, so the question about posture is, is it true, a couple of questions, is it true to say that we're no longer labelling posture types and doing posture analysis? Um, you know, someone with an obvious kyphosis is not going to move away from that posture. Uh, also, what's sway back and what's not sway back? All right. So, uh, yeah, post, well, 
are we labeling posture types and performing posture analysis? No, we're not for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, posture basically has very little to no correlation with pain or physical function. Uh, so it's not really a useful thing to be able to measure. It, it also has very minimal um, relationship with actual muscle balance. So the whole kind of assumption that, you know, an anterior pelvic tilt is correlated with tight hip flexors, weak abdominals, you know, weak hamstrings, long hamstrings, whatever it might be, um, that turns out to be not founded on reality. Uh, so people with, you know, anterior pelvic tilt have long hip flexors or short hip flexors or normal length hip flexors, just the same as anybody else who doesn't have an anterior pelvic tilt. Um, so yeah, so those, those kind of assumptions about, you know, muscle balance and posture type correlating together are not well founded. There are one or two situations where they do correlate, but, uh, in the majority of cases they do not. Uh, so that's one thing. It's not particularly useful. Doesn't tell us about muscle balance. Doesn't tell us about pain. People with and without, you know, sway back posture, or whatever, uh, get pain in pretty much the same uh, proportion uh, in low back pain. We're talking about. Um, and then the the next reason is that it's pretty hard to actually measure someone's posture accurately because bony landmarks vary in their position uh, from person to person, from side to side. Uh, and that uh, it's also very difficult to palpate bony landmarks accurately. So when we've got variation between the position of bony landmarks from person to person and from side to side, and we've also got a large margin for error, like one centimetre plus or minus when we're palpating them, uh, and they're one centimetre plus or minus on the position of the bony landmarks, uh, it becomes basically impossible. You know, it's like plus or minus two centimeters on either side uh, makes it basically impossible to to measure anything with any degree of accuracy. Uh, and then thirdly, uh, people's posture does change over the course of the day, depending on emotion, depending on fatigue, um, and uh, also over the course of their lifespan. Having said that, um, you know, if someone has a very obvious kyphosis, you know, like if you look at your grandma and she's got a really obvious kyphosis, um, you get, come back an hour later, she's going to still have an obvious kyphosis. So um, people's posture changes, but it doesn't change like, you know, unrecognizably. You know, someone doesn't, um, you know, all of a sudden you know, lose a uh, significant kyphosis like that. Um, but if you looked at me sitting slumped over my desk at, you know, 8 p.m., <laughs> Um, you'd notice that I've got a kyphosis. And then if you looked at me uh, sitting having my coffee in the morning at, you know, seven o'clock, you'd see that I don't have a kyphosis. So, uh, you know, people's posture can be variable. Um, uh, all right. So basically, yeah, do we do assess posture? It's not really useful. Um, the The whole notion of posture types was that each posture type has some kind of you know, relationship to muscle balance, like lordosis kyphosis has tight upper abs, weak lower abs, long upper back, tight lower back, tight hip flexors, weak glutes, you know, all of this. That turned out to be not true, right? So if you know someone's, quote, posture type, it doesn't actually tell you anything useful about what's going on in their body biomechanically. Um, second thing is it doesn't correlate to pain. Third thing is you can't basically measure it because bony landmarks vary and also we're really crap at palpating. Even those of us who think we're awesome at palpating, we still suck. Um, and so, all right, so sway back, Would you? why would you worry about that? I would say like, who cares what done, whether you've got a sway back posture or not? Um, just don't 
don't worry about it, let it go. Um, but just for the books, um, for for the people in the back, um, sway back uh, posture, which is just an artifact of how we used to think about biomechanics back in the 1990s and 1960s and 1940s, um, is where the thoracic, the thorax, sways back. So that is where your hips sway forward and your torso sways back. So your pelvis is in front of your rib cage, or put another way, your rib cage is behind your pelvis. Uh, and typically that's in, uh, accompanied by a posterior pelvic tilt, although it can be accompanied by an anterior pelvic tilt. So the distinguishing feature of sway back is not the pelvic tilt. It is the fact that the center of mass of the rib cage is posterior to the center of mass of the pelvis. Uh, whereas what you're describing, Andrea, with an anterior pelvic tilt and a lordotic lumbar curve, that is called uh, lordotic posture. So there you go. But I wouldn't worry about it because it's like totally normal, not a problem, and doesn't tell us anything useful about you. Um, so yeah, there you go. Um, actually, I read a study. I read a study one time, uh, several years ago. Um, it was in, it was kind of a little bit tongue in cheek, uh, and it was basically uh, looking at you know men looking at photos of women and rating them on their how attractive they were on a scale of one to ten, um, and. These men, you know, so they did all kinds of things by, you know, like manipulating women's waist-hip ratio in these photos and their butt size and their breast size and their waist size and all this kind of stuff. And, and what they found was that women with a lordotic posture were judged more attractive by these men. So, um, yeah, take from that what you will. All right. Now we do have a question from Sarah. Um, and this one's genuinely from Sarah, I believe. Hi, Raf. Hope you're well. I just started listening to Amy AMA every Friday and love it. Thanks for your insights and the research you bring us. My pleasure. Um, as I work in admin at a physio clinic, I had a patient ring through who told me she couldn't attend Pilates anymore because she has three specialists, a pelvic floor specialist being one, tell her to stop as her pelvic floor was as hard as a rock. I'm not sure what this meant, and I didn't ask because I'm not her practitioner. She was obviously devastated uh, because she loved coming in to do Pilates with her physio one-to-one -one during lockdown. My question is, though, are there really any conditions that would preclude someone from doing Pilates or exercise at all? I know it would be outside my scope to comment as I'm not a doctor, specialist or physio, but as I passed on the message to the physio, the gossip started and all agreed that anyone can do Pilates. I have the same opinion, but is this really true? Thanks for your time. Kind regards, Sarah. Um, well, Sarah, uh, I think that, you know, there's a, there are a few things in there to unpack. Uh, the first one, the, the but the bigger question, the biggest question which you asked though is basically like, is it basically healthy for everybody to do exercise and Pilates? And I would say pretty much yes. There are one or two situations, um, total edge cases uh, for people with severe, you know, uh, gestational diabetes or, you know, one or two other very, very severe, you know, end stage heart failure, something like that. Um, it might not be a good idea to do exercise. 
Um, but for basically 99.999999% of the population, uh, it's basically always going to be a good plan to get moving. Um, and so for somebody with merely a rock hard pelvic floor, um, totally, utterly, completely, and in all other ways, safe to do Pilates. Now, will that help her pelvic floor or not? I don't know. Um, so I guess uh, here's, here's what I've got to say about pelvic floor and Pilates. Um, I'm not a pelvic floor specialist, but I've talked to a bunch of them and I've read a bunch of literature. Uh, and it does seem to be the case that when people have issues with their pelvic floor, you know, they have uh, incontinence, for example, urinary incontinence, or sometimes a pelvic organ prolapse, you know, uterine prolapse down into the vaginal canal, um, you know, various other issues that people have with their pelvic floor, but those are the two of the big ones. Um, it's a good plan to see a pelvic floor specialist. And the reason for that is because for those people, it's not always a case the case that their pelvic floor is underactive. In many cases, it is the case that their pelvic floor is in fact overactive. And so for some fraction of women, let's say roughly half, uh, although I don't know the exact number, you know, pelvic floor rehab, you know, or fixing urinary incontinence, for example, might involve learning to relax the pelvic floor rather than contract it. Uh, and for some other fraction of women, let's say half, or I don't know the real number, uh, it's going to involve learning to contract it properly. Um, so it's, it's pelvic floor uh, training or rehab is going to be an individualized process. Now, how can you tell if somebody's pelvic floor is overactive or underactive? Well, basically, uh, the literature that I've seen suggests that a digital exam, so in other words, gloves on, finger inside the vagina, palpating the pelvic floor, um, combined or uh with ultrasound, real-time ultrasound, is the only reliable way to tell if a woman is, you know, contracting her pelvic floor properly. Now, that's obviously something that a Pilates instructor doesn't do. So that is a women's health specialist physio's role is to, you know, give the woman that exam and figure out, you know, what's going on with her pelvic floor. Is it underactive or overactive? And 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 guide her with with individualized cues um, and biofeedback. So in other words, you know, using real-time ultrasound or using digital palpation whilst having the woman contract her pelvic floor to give her feedback on whether she's doing it correctly. You know, is she overcooking it or undercooking it, in other words. And so just say you had a woman who was, you know, who had overactive pelvic floor, right? And maybe she's got urinary incontinence or whatever. Uh and her pelvic health physios, you know, helping her retrain her pelvic floor. And, you know, that involves training her to relax the pelvic floor. Just let's just say in this particular instance, because you said her pelvic floor is rock hard. So if that woman then goes to Pilates class and is constantly told throughout the Pilates class, contract your pelvic floor, everyone contract your pelvic floor. Well, that's probably going to be counterproductive for her pelvic floor rehab because the pelvic floor physio has just spent an hour teaching her to relax the darn muscles. And now, you know, some Pilates instructors like yelling at her to, or, you know, gently encouraging her to contract those muscles. And so she's getting mixed messages and it's probably not going to be 
productive. Now, is she going to explode? No, she'll be totally fine. You know, she might leak a bit, um, might have a little bit of urinary incontinence, um, which will be, you know, potentially embarrassing and annoying and whatever, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, should she stop doing Pilates? Well, I just, I'm, I'm a, not a big fan of telling people to not do things they love and that give them meaning and that are very healthy for them. I think that's a really bad plan. So if, if I was that woman's pelvic health physio, right, and if that was her situation where she was, you know, had urinary incontinence, say, or a uterine prolapse, and she was over contracting or incorrectly contracting her pelvic floor, and I was trying to retrain her, okay, what, and, and I knew that she loved Pilates, well, what I might do would be get in touch with her Pilates teacher and say, hey, could you just not cue her pelvic floor, please, for a bit, you know, because I'm trying to I'm trying to retrain this stuff here and, you know, you jumping in and cracking the whip on her and telling her to, you know, suck um, back a urine or imagine the elevator rising to the third floor or the flower petals gently unfolding, like that's not helping matters. So can you just like keep to your own department and let me worry about the pelvic floor. So that, or, you know, maybe they'll do it a bit nicer than that and give you a specific cue. They might say, hey, if you use this cue, that will really help this lady. Um, So that would be the sort of thing that I would hope to receive from a pelvic health physio uh, if I was this woman's instructor, rather than just a blanket instruction of don't do Pilates, because I reckon that's really uh, not a good thing uh, for this woman's mental and physical health. So I would encourage you to go get a different pelvic health physio who's got a more uh, pro-exercise mentality and who will work with her Pilates instructors. Uh, And I don't know which capital city you're in or which location you're in, Sarah, but I can recommend a couple of good women's health physios depending where you are. Uh, And so that's what I would recommend you do for this woman. Um, Yeah, so that's basically that. Uh, Hope that helps. All right, last question from Marika. Uh, Marika says, uh, basically, scapular stabilization, um, a lot of people tighten up in their in this area, um, as I've witnessed over the years, and they can over-contract the muscles uh, involved, including the neck area, leading to pain and maybe even damage in the long term. Um, I would usually adjust by gentle touch, as typically these people have a more aggressive nature or you know, very yang kind of way of presenting. Um, maybe for these uh, class members, doing scapular stabilizations and retractions ought to be done in supine um, as opposed to a seated or on all fours, as the floor can be used as a tool against the body to understand the feeling of the movement. What are your views on this? Sincerely, Marika. Well, thank you, Marika. And it's really nice to hear from you. Uh, well, what are my views on this? Well, Scapular stabilization is not something I'm a big fan of, um, and the reason is that it has not been shown to uh, correlate with, um, you know, particularly with helpful outcomes in uh, shoulder pain or injury. Uh, if someone has uh, shoulder pain uh, with or without a shoulder injury, um, the basic um, current best practice is general strengthening of the shoulder girdle. Um, So, you know, all of the shoulder muscles and uh, shoulder girdle muscles uh, and just using general exercise. So, you know, a push and a pull movement, basically. Um, 
and advice to stay active and reassurance. And those are the kind of the key um, elements of uh, shoulder health. Uh, and, you know, so things like um, you know, people holding tension in their neck area um, and that leading to pain and even damage, I'm sceptical about that notion. Um, I know that people who have neck pain also have a sensation of neck tension. And so they have a, they have a, a bodily sensation of neck tension and also pain. But uh, the, the, the sensation of tension doesn't correlate very well with actual measurable tension in the muscles. Um, and there's been some research that has uh, found this. Um, uh, so, uh, which I'll link to, it's a Stanton et al. study from 2017. Um, and furthermore, uh, you know, in particular for um, you know, women with computer-related shoulder pain, so you know, probably the typical Pilates client, you know, forty to fifty-year-old women or thirty to fifty-year-old women um, who work at computers uh, and have you know tight upper traps, basically, um, the most effective intervention is upper trap strengthening. So not stretching not ergonomics, not relaxation, not retraining, just strengthening. Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, and this is where I, I think uh, philosophically I diverge with, um, you know, many folk in the Pilates industry, uh, which, uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, if I if I try and sum up the, the position, uh, it's that, you know, basically understanding your body, experiencing your body, um, being in touch with your body is the way to, you know, um, heal slash rehab slash eliminate tension, you know, discomfort, pain. Um, now, that's my understanding of of the position of many Pilates instructors. That in order to you know, so if you have shoulder pain, in other words, you need to kind of get uh, you know experience the movement of your shoulder, the movements of you know the position of your shoulder, uh, and release tension from that area and move it more smoothly and effortlessly. Uh, and I have to say that I disagree with that. Um, and the reason I disagree with it is because. Uh, it just has not been brought out in the research. Um, you know, retraining of um, scapular movements, um, repositioning of the scapula, uh, releasing tension from the scapular muscles, the periscapular muscles, the trapezius, the rhomboids, the sternocleidomastoids, the whatever, um, has not been shown to be effective in, in helping people with shoulder pain. And people with, you know, higher body awareness don't have less pain than people with lower body awareness. If anything, uh, people who are more focused on their body sensations tend to have more pain. Um, uh, and that is just a focus, that is just a function of attention. You know, um, when you have pain, if you focus on thinking about it, does it hurt? How does it feel? How does it feel? How does it feel? Um, it, you notice how it's feeling and you tend to be hyper aware of the, that body part. If you get distracted by something, actually the pain often goes away. Uh, and again, there's good literature to back this up and probably you know it from your own experience. 
Uh, so I'm actually a big fan of not um, understanding the feeling of movements in in your body um, and not focusing on it. And if 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 I have an ache or a pain, um, my approach is to blinking well, ignore it and get on about my business and think about other things. Uh, and of course, to keep doing my strength training, which I do uh, on a daily basis. So um, I guess, uh, you know, where does that leave me? What's my position on uh, scapular stabilizations? Um, I guess my position is if someone came to my class and they had pain in their neck, I would be giving them neck and upper shoulder strengthening. So I'd get them to stand uh, with a flex band, one end of a flex band in each hand, uh, and stand on the middle of the flex band and do lateral raises with the flex band, you know, with their arms straight out to the side. Uh, and that would work their neck and upper upper shoulders, or I'd get them to do push-ups or, um, you know, uh, down dogs or, you know, bicep curls with the band or with weights. So I'll get them to do, uh, you know, all kinds of shoulder movement and strengthening with a strong emphasis on strengthening. Uh, And I would not focus on uh, awareness or, um, you know, perception or understanding. I would try on, you know, the opposite, I would try to distract them <laughs> from their body sensations. And so I, the thing I would try and focus them on would be like, do you reckon you can do another five, you know? Um, or I would give them external uh, focus of attention cues, like, you know, push the mat away, um, tighten the band, um, those kinds of things. Um, so I hope that helps. And uh, thank you very much, everybody, for your questions. Um uh, thank you for uh, letting me do this on, you know, for listening to this uh, on audio, which allows me to you know, not have a shower or, or wear a shirt before I do it, which is awesome. Um, and uh, I look forward to your, your next round of questions. Um, I hope you have a fantastic week and uh, all the best to you and your loved ones.